Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 10, and we are going to finish speaking about the panoplia this week. Sort of. Sort of. (laughs) There are six pieces of armor that are listed explicitly in the epistle of Ephesians, but as I alluded to before, there are six participles, or ing verbs in English, if you will, that Paul uses as the way that we are to stand firm. And so this really carries on in through verse 18, which we are, Lord willing, going to get to next week. We are looking back at the last piece of this armor. Paul transitioned his grammar from these participles, and he turned into a command. And he was giving a command that we must receive the helmet of salvation, and we will look this morning at the sword of the Spirit. Let's start in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf. That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let's review. The first piece of armor, gird your loins with what? Truth. Secondly, clothe or array your breast, your chest, your, the, the word is thorax, with what? Righteousness. Thirdly, bind or shackle your feet with the preparation or the readiness of the gospel of peace. I, my freebie definition there, not freebie, but another way of looking at that is essentially salvation. If you could encapsulate the readiness of the gospel of peace, this is not peace as in civil war peace, this is peace between God and man. It's talking about salvation, bringing the good news, the message of hope to the world, everywhere our feet tread. Fourth, take up our shield of faith, pisteo, pistis, it's the word for faith, that there is, we talked in Hebrews about how there are things that are unseen, it's a conviction of things that are unseen, it's, it's also our hope, it's the foundation for our hope of what we believe, and, and this is the shield of faith which helps us to, I alluded to, my take on it is extinguish the lies of the enemy, that we would stand on the truth of the Word of God within our feet, in our faith. Fifth, receive is the word. Your Bible most assuredly says take, but the word literally is receive the helmet of salvation. And this word is deliverance. It's not necessarily talking about the sozo type of salvation of spirit. It's talking about God's supernatural defense on us in the evil day. 
receive that helmet guarding your mind against the attacks of the enemy. Defense. How do we do that? Renewing our mind. Number six, and this is the same word. There's only one verb that you see in this verse, and it's joined together with a conjunction. I know I get into a lot of grammar, and you guys wanted to forget all of that in secondary school, high school. And you, we're all going to be experts at this point in this one little passage. Conjunction joins these words together, and it does not say take. It again says receive the what of what? Sword of the Spirit. Action, object, spiritual attribute. The action here is receive. Receive. What is the object? In this sixth piece of the panoplia, that's the Greek word for full armor of God. Remember, it's all one, panoplia. They all work together. Can't pick and choose four or five that you want or three or two. You got all six, you got none. Okay? Lots, lots of people... You, I bet if we just brought my kids in this room and we put out six pieces of armor, I bet most of them would go for the sword first. And I bet a few of them, probably Malachi, would want to put on the helmet. I'm just pretty sure on that. Okay? Sarah might go to the shoes. I don't know. She really loves lift shoes. But you can't just pick one. You've got to put it all on. That's how we're equipped to stand firm in the evil day. All six pieces are panoplia. Now, the sword is the object. Action, object, spiritual attribute. Receive sword. The sword is a makaira in Greek. And I don't want to make too much of this. The lexicons will point you to saying, well, it's a large knife or a small sword. But generically, through the entire New Testament, makaira is just used for sword, dagger. Peter cutting off the, the ear. It was makaira. This is a sword. It's a knife. It's, it's talking about cutting fishing nets. This is a, a broad thing. And so I don't want to make too much of what is not necessarily there. For, for instance, maybe if you could think, if Paul said, um, take up your, your wrench, which symbolizes hard work, you might be you know, tempted to read into it, well, is it a socket wrench? Is it a crescent wrench? Is it a pipe wrench? Is it an open-ended wrench? Is it a crow's foot wrench? What kind of wrench? He's just said, well, take up a wrench, okay? So that, don't make too much of it. I've seen too many commentaries that say, oh, it's a hooked sword that has a, a blah, 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 and you gut somebody and you pull out their intestines and we're gutting. Okay, it might help for you to remember that. Maybe we could say gut the, gut the evil one. I don't know, but it's just sword, sword. It's not a falcata or a kapis or a sika or a zyphos. Yes, I'm into blacksmithing. I love it. There's, these are all these distinguished nuances. Um, it's just sword, okay? Bear in mind, these are all working together. And couple that fact with that there is a posture here throughout this so that you can resist Resist in the evil day. Resist the temptations. Resist the evil one. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. Three times. Often you'll hear commentators say, well, this is your only offensive weapon. Sort of. A Roman soldier was taught to fight with any means necessary. If that meant bashing with a shield, bash him with a shield. That meant kicking them with your, remember their studded cleats, their shoes? You can kick them with those too. So, Again, I know it's tempting. I know you've probably heard that to try and read into some things that aren't necessarily there. I don't want to make too much of this by saying, well, this is our only offensive weapon. God tells us, you know, we've got five pieces that are defensive and one that's offensive. We've got to do five times as much defense. Okay, maybe that's helpful to you, but that's not what the Scripture says. 
let's take it for what it's worth. There's uh, two different ways of looking at Scripture. One is eisegesis, which is reading into, literally breathe into the Scriptures your own thoughts and ideas, which can get you down dangerous roads. There's also exegesis, which is reading out or literally breathing out of the Scripture, allowing God's Word to speak to us. And this is what I think is is really the preferred or the better way of, of looking at it, saying, God, what does your word mean? What was it intended to mean? And it's looking through the context of the history, but it's also using God's word to say, God, against the rest of your word, what does this passage mean? So I just want us to, I know that's a little off track, be careful about reading into things that are not necessarily there. God is saying over and over throughout this passage, stand firm. That's our job. You remember I pointed us to the Old Testament. God says, stand firm, fear not. And this was the Old Testament way of God saying, I'm going to deliver you. And while, yes, you can swing and sever limbs and gut people with a sword, the picture is a much more defensive posture. It's resisting the attack of the enemy, and we do that by taking up the sword of the Spirit. We defend with the sword just as much as you attack with it. And it's nice to, nice to think about all those things. Let's just not read more into Scripture than the Holy Spirit gives us by way of revelation. Action. What's the action? Receive. What's the object? Sword. The spiritual attribute is of the Spirit. Spirit. Pneumatos. Of the Spirit. Now, I, just, I know we reviewed the pieces of armor. But just again, to be thinking, I want us to think specifically. I'm just going to look at the spiritual attributes this morning. These are the attributes, or I had a hard time finding a word for that. It, it could just as easily be conditions or gifts, whatever you want to call it. Okay, I just chose to call it an, an attribute. I want you to think just pause and think about these six things. These six things by themselves are our spiritual defense. What are they? We have truth, righteousness, evangelism, faith, deliverance, and Holy Spirit. If you don't think the Spirit plays an important role in the survival of the believer, think again. What's the belt crafted in? Truth. The belt of truth. What's the shield consist of? Faith. What's the sword forged in? Pneumatos. Spirit. And I know sometimes we, we sort of think, oh, well, that's just, you know, the Holy Spirit's good for those fanatic people, right? Those fanatics, I wasn't trying to point at Curtis. <laughs> just this way, the cross, that's the fanatic people hang out by the cross, right? But the panoplia is one set of things working together. And the Spirit is just as important to our defense as righteousness, truth, faith, evangelism. I could just as easily pick on evangelism, not just spirit. 
oftentimes we think, okay, well, I need faith, I need to be sanctified, I need God's righteousness, right? These are things, I want peace, I want to carry his gospel to the world. But we have a hard time maybe taking up the shield of faith. That's too charismatic. Or some people have a hard time thinking about spreading the gospel. Well, that's just for the gifted evangelist. No, it's not. It's part of your defense mechanism. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Your spiritual defense is getting your eyes off of the circumstances around you and begin to see your important role as your short time on earth as sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, your mind gets Take it away from the cares of the world. The Holy Spirit is this supernatural gift from God that is just as essential to our walk and our spiritual survival as faith, salvation, truth, righteousness. We need the Holy Spirit. And if you don't recognize that the sword comes from Him, then you will never be able to use it effectively. It's the spirit sword. There's a lot of people that are trying to undermine the word of God. It's a good allegory. It's poetry. Only Jesus' words matter. Only the New Testament's significant. There's lots of different various arguments that the progressive church is sort of sinking and slipping into. And if you don't have a high regard of Scripture, then you're going to never be able to use the sword, which comes from the Holy Spirit, can use effectively. It's the spirit sword. It's from God Himself. It's by the extension of the Holy Spirit. If we don't give credit to God the Father's being the source of this last piece, then we will never be able to understand its power. I want to point out that the sword does not belong to us. It doesn't belong to the church. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. That's how the battle must be won. The death blow of our enemy must be used according to God's prescribed means of in the Spirit. You cannot rely on your human prescribed methods and opinions and philosophies in a supernatural battle because our man-made ways of trying to handle Satan are going to nullify God's power. Whatever we try to think up, let's just get practical. If the Holy Spirit, and this is what Curtis was getting at, at our meeting several weeks ago. We think selling the land is going to buy us some time in the church, but the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us to do that. Then we're nullifying God's power. That's the point, okay? We cannot take up our own sword and craft it by our own strength and might. It's of the Spirit if you want to stand firm, okay? The outcome for the victory in the spiritual realm is rooted and grounded in God. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh. You cannot fight a spiritual battle in the natural realm. You cannot defeat Satan without God. We cannot live victoriously in the flesh. Supernatural battle calls for a supernatural armor. We must be in the spirit if we are ever going to stand a chance. And I want to remind you that we're not talking about, we're talking about all conflict. If you were to back back up a few weeks, we're talking about our wrestles or our struggles are not against what? Flesh and blood. It's not in the natural realm. Our foe is of the unseen world. And if you think that the problems around you are earthly, that they are related to material problems, I don't have enough, 
I might get sick. That person's doing evil. Then you're already losing the battle because our battle is against flesh and blood. Listen, your boss is not your problem. Your president, your governor, they're not your problem. Your son, your daughter is not your problem. They might be allowing the devil to work through them, but they're not the root and the source of the problem. There's a spiritual problem. The sword of the Spirit, we need it. We need the Spirit's sword. What is it made of? The Word of God. The Spirit's sword, it is from Him, which is what? The Word of God. So our Bibles, right? Well, not exactly. In Greek, I know, sorry, there are two different words for word. Does anyone know them? I know many does. Logos or logos? Most people say logos, but logos. What else? Rhema. These are the two words that we have translated into English. When you read your Bible, we just say, oh, it's Word. It's got to be Word. It's the Word of God. That's, we use it synonymously with Bible, Scripture. But in Greek, it's not the logos or logos. It is the other one. We are talking about employing God's supernatural armor. I think it would be helpful for us to know which kind of word we're talking about. Most commentators will point us to Hebrews chapter 4.12. Perhaps you even know the verse that says, and I, and I often will quote this and even pray it into my message before we even start, right? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Piercing as far as the divisions of the soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the sword. We have this picture and we have another scripture and we say, okay, well, we use the scripture to figure out what God's talking about in the scripture. And so it's talking about the word of God being sharp, a double-edged sword. It must certainly be talking about the same thing here in Ephesians. No, it's not. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God that's living and active is the logos. The logos, God's written word, is living and active. But Paul says, I want you to take up the rhema, the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God. Now, how would I differentiate these? I'm so glad you asked. Logos, as I've just said, the short definition would be written word. If you want to write something down, the logos is generally speaking the written word. It can be written out to you from a prophet, certainly referring to the word of God. The rhema is the spoken word. A longer definition would be something like this. The logos is the expression of thought or a saying or statement by God. God's written word to us. His logos is his expression of his thoughts and his feelings. He's actually, that's what the Bible is. It's not just good writings. You know that, right? This is God's heart being expressed to us in written form. That's why it's so important that we view this in high regard. It's not just random words all jumbled together. Moses got bored up on the mountain for 40 days, so he decided to write down some really funky laws, right? This is God's expression to his people through his servants, inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's the logos or the logos. The rhema is that which is being uttered by a living voice or a living thing. So, so the rhema is this freshly spoken word. In a sense, although I'm teaching the Logos this morning, 
Hopefully, if your ears are in tune and you ask the Lord to teach you, you're getting a rhema. You're allowing a living voice to speak to you in that sense. You're allow- I'm allowing, I've asked the Holy Spirit to speak through me, but you're receiving the word that the Holy Spirit gave to me. I don't buy these sermons online. If I bought these sermons online and I stood up here and read it and preached them, you'd be getting a logos, a written word. I ask the Holy Spirit to take my words and speak out of me what you want. That's a fresh spoken word, a rhema. Many say that they are used interchangeably and they chalk it up to imaginary differences, but I don't believe that is good exegesis. That's the word I used earlier, reading out of Scripture. And I don't believe it's fair and consistent with how the rest of the New Testament uses them. So what's the difference? Bill Haman says this. He's a prophet, a writer. says, The Logos is the general word of God that communicates his ability to do something or his general will on a matter. While a rhema is the word of the Holy Spirit quickens to a specific person in a specific situation. Here's an analogy on the matter. The Logos would be like a well. A rhema would be like dipping a bucket into the well and feeding your thirsty, parched lips. It's taking a part of God's written heart and His word but using it for a specific purpose in a moment. Let's use a couple examples. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Logos or Rhema. Isn't it important to know? In the beginning is the Logos, the written word of God. It was with God and was God. He was with God in the beginning. Faith comes from and hearing by the rhema. That's why two people can go to a, sit under a sermon and only one of them walks away with salvation. Sitting under biblical teaching or reading the Bible will not necessarily get you saved. Hearing with spiritual ears and receiving the freshly spoken word of God to your heart, that is what saves you. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Logos. His word, his written word, his word about what? Everything. Especially the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled will not pass away. In other words, take them to the bank. What God spoke into existence, what he set into motion out of nothing, the whole creation of the universe, none of that, none of it can be stopped now. That's what God is saying. It can't be stopped. I spoke it because otherwise, if it did not come to pass, God would be a liar. And if God was a liar, then he was sinful. And if he was sinful, then he could not die for our sins through Jesus Christ. His logos will not pass away. Man does not live on bread, but by every rhema. There are some passages 
that might be difficult to read. There are times in your life where you might be wanting some encouragement. And while you can get some, and you can ask the Lord to bless your time of study, and sometimes you walk away still feeling empty. It's not specifically the Bible, reading the Bible that will encourage you, although it can and often does. But it's the rhema of God that will encourage your spirit, man, which often happens as we are obedient to read His Logos. But man does not live on bread. We don't feast on just the, the Bible. It's important to know the distinction between these two words. We feast on every life or every life-giving, freshly spoken word of God that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's what is life, the freshly spoken word. How many of you have ever been to a stale church service? A stale teaching, right? Maybe even here. Maybe under me. I'm guilty, right? We can raise both hands for that. You can speak the Word of God without a freshness because you've done it out of your own flesh. I'll never forget there was a Sunday I did it. I prepared a sermon. The Lord kind of subtly to my spirit said, this is not the way I want you to do it. And I stood up here and I went through my notes that I had prepared so diligently through the week because I put effort in. And I remember it was just drudgery. 40 minutes of drudgery for me because I knew I was speaking something that God did not want for our body. And I've told you this before, and I had to repent of it. And for those that are worried, yes, I repented of it, and I'm sorry. And I promised to God that I would never do it again. And I went home beating myself up. Because there's nothing worse than listening to a stale word. But I was also disobedient in that. And I have a responsibility as the teacher to teach the fresh word. It's the fresh word of God that gives us life. Our verse again. All right, sidetracked. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God. The freshly spoken word of God. It carries this idea of a quickened word for such a time as this. this the Holy Spirit supernaturally, carefully, and purposefully places a word into the believer's mind, and he speaks this rhema to us. He wants to speak to us, each and every one of us, not just the pastor, every one of us, an undeniable, unmistakable, and unquestionable language that we can hear and understand. Sometimes it's audible, although I can't say that that happens very often. It certainly can be. Most often with me, it's the still, small voice. And sometimes you get confirmation for it. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have to ask for confirmation. It's not in your head. It's not a head knowledge of, oh, that was a really good idea I came up with. There's a distinction in your heart, and your spirit helps you to determine that word. But he wants you to seek him. Perhaps the best example of this powerful sword of the spirit in action is found in Luke chapter 4, if you want to turn there. Luke chapter 4. The temptation of Jesus. I want to read a chunk of scriptures here this morning. I know I spend too much time talking about things that you didn't care about. No, I'm kidding. No, we're, we're going to get through this. I might hold you a little late. I might have to speed up here. Might have to pick back up next week. Luke chapter 4, verse 3. The devil said to him, this is Jesus, if you, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered to him, it is written. Now this written is important because it's 
it's echoing back to the logos, the written word of God. But Jesus didn't just pull a random verse out. Notice this. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, been baptized. Remember, the dove was descending upon Jesus up and down. We see him being absolutely filled with the Holy Spirit. And a verse comes to his mind. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. When he led him up, this is the devil again, led him up, Jesus up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And the devil said to him, I will give you all of his domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I can give it to, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours, Jesus answered and said. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, he's using an Old Testament scripture. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And now Satan, the devil, is quoting or misquoting, miscontexting a verse. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil had finished every temptation. He left him until an opportune time. Not all rimas or remas are literally scriptural verses. They absolutely can be. What Paul is writing here is that our sword is whatever the Holy Spirit brings to our mind for a particular time. It may be a word of encouragement. It could be a dream. It could be a vision. It may be a verse that you know. God could even give you a verse that you don't even know. He's just that cool. But each of these words, these ramas, are specific to the time and situation that you're in. Now, obviously, if the Holy Spirit is giving you a word or recalling something to your memory and encouragement, it helps to have a foundation of the Logos. But the picture here is not of coming under attack by the devil and retaliating. Our attack is just to retaliate by reading chunks. Okay, well, I've had enough of you, Satan. And we just go in our little prayer closet and we read like 67 chapters because we're one better than the books of the Bible. I'll show him. The devil flees covering his ears. No! What if we read some obscure verses like, I don't know, there's some weird ones in Deuteronomy, Leviticus. The Lord will smite you with all the boils of Egypt. That's a verse, 28, 27. How is that going to be for the moment? Probably not. Now, it could be. If the Holy Spirit gives you that and you're supposed to speak to some boils over somebody, great, go for it. The Panoplia sword is not random. My point is, it's not random. It's a freshly spoken word. You know, we've, we've probably, you've, you've done that. You've right? you ever needed some encouragement and you've gone, Lord, let that be the verse I need right now. The idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hand. And you try again, right? Maybe you've done that. You've picked a random verse and a random page and you try to apply it to a situation. That's the problem. If you're applying something that is of God in the wrong situation, you can get into trouble. 
But when we say, Holy Spirit, I need your help. What is your word for me for this situation right now? That is how we effectively stand firm against the attack of the evil, evil one, by equipping the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I won't limit God. He absolutely can lead your random finger to a random verse in the Bible. He's big enough to do that. But make sure we're applying Scripture the right way and we're seeking God and His will on things. If we're going to stand firm against the attacks of the enemy, we need that rhema word, that freshly spoken word. It's great to be able to quote the Bible. It's a foundation that will pay absolutely huge dividends in your life. But we're not talking about reading a random verse when the devil attacks. Jesus knew the Scripture, and he quoted specific verses for a specific moment, but I believe it was a rhema given by the Holy Spirit as a way to help him combat the temptations and lies of the evil one. And it's these specific words that we are told are the, the sword of the Spirit, not the logos. It's not the sword of the Spirit, which is the logos of God. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema, the freshly spoken word. Understand that the logos and the rhema are not the same thing. We need that fresh word of God. Okay? So often we hear the Bible is just our sword and people use these interchangeably, but I don't believe that's the correct exegesis or application of the scripture. Smith Wigglesworth supposedly said this. I could not vouch for it. I couldn't verify this, but um, it was attributed in one place I read. It says, if we have the Holy Spirit in us, but we do not have the word, we can avail little. If we have the Bible knowledge without the Holy Spirit in us, again, we avail little. However, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit and have knowledge of the Logos Word of God, we can be powerful forces for His kingdom. Do you remember I said um, last week we cannot take up our own salvation, and this is the point and purpose of looking at this action word, which is not take, as your Bibles have it, but receive. Well, the same thing happens with the Word of God. You can take up the Word of God, but we have to receive, that's right, the rhema of God. It must come from Him. We're not talking about the logos and picking it up. We're talking about receiving. Receive the sword of the Spirit. Receive it. It can only come from Him. Receive it so that He can help you apply it to something specific. One of the most significant things that we can do to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy is to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Let that sink in. Before you do anything in battle, listen to the Holy Spirit. If our sword is of the Spirit, which is the freshly spoken word of God, then, pastor, how do we hear these so-called rhema words? I want to very quickly go through a very introductory lesson on being filled with the Spirit, which I intend fully to pick back up next week as we look at praying with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Okay, these two weeks really are going to go together. But I want to just give us a little piece of this, an introduction. How do we hear these so-called rhema words? Well, just as if you spend more time around me or anybody, you get to know my voice better. True? As much as I hate listening to my own voice, you ever left a message on your answering machine, your voice, I guess people don't have that problem anymore. Nobody, does anyone have an answering machine at home? Yeah, okay, a few people do. I haven't been around a home with a landline. My parents do because they don't have cell phone reception at their house. But you ever hear your voice? You leave, leave a message? Oh, it's so cringeworthy, isn't it? 
just makes you, chills go down your spine. I sound like that? Even as I listen to myself, my own sermon recordings, I used to get so embarrassed. I really sound like that. I've gotten kind of comfortable. I can recognize my voice now. I hear you, probably if you played a two-second clip of my voice, I'd probably really recognize it. So it is with God. This is logical, but it's also scriptural. That the more time we spend with God, the better we will be able to identify His voice. And our ears will develop to His voice. So how then do we spend time with Him? Well, you didn't really help me answer that question. Well, I believe our communion with the Father comes through the Holy Spirit living in us and filling in us, filling us. That is, when we communicate directly with God, He's with us and vice versa. That is part of the blessing of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine. We looked at this a few weeks ago. But what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That word filled in Greek is this constant overflowing. Continually fill yourself up with the Spirit. And I believe as we continually fill ourselves up with the Spirit, what happens in our life is intimacy. We can't go anywhere without the Holy Spirit because we're filled up with Him. Now, when we come, become saved, it's true that the Holy Spirit leads the sons of God that there's this part of the Holy Spirit's leading, and He's involved with the whole process of what you would call the sinner's prayer, which I think is not necessarily anything. It's, it's when do you come to believe in God? And it can be a gradual thing. It can be an overnight thing. It can be a decision, come down front and give your life to the Lord. Great. The Holy Spirit's involved with all of that. But there's a separate thing that must happen in the life of the believer is that we ask to be filled with His Spirit. Not a one-time baptism in the Holy Spirit, which often we do in the charismatic churches. We get baptized in the Spirit. Okay, what day were you baptized? And that's normally referring to water baptism. And then what day were, were, have you ever received the baptism of the Spirit? And we can have, some of us probably have those written down somewhere, or you know what date it was. I was eight years old. We were at a church retreat when I got laid hands on, and I received the baptism of the Spirit. The problem is, so many people have that idea that that's it. I got everything. I got the first blessing. I got the second blessing. These are terms that the church uses. But the scripture says, continually and constantly fill yourself up to overflowing with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. That's the picture. In the same way that the world would go to alcohol and desire to consume it in a way that would take over their body, that they can sort of feel good, have a buzz. God wants us to be so filled with, not of substance, but of spirit, that we bust out in holy laughter. You start having some trips, right? Good trips. Only, spiritual trips are only good trips. Keep on being crammed full of the Spirit. And as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, here's what happens. Sometimes we don't think about this. We say, wait a second, I want to hear from God to make sure that it's okay to be filled with the Spirit. Yeah, but th this, is how, this is what Scripture says. As you're filled with the Spirit, you will be able to better hear God. 
John 16, 13, Jesus says, but when he, notice that the Spirit is personal. He, the Spirit of truth, comes. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. A rhema word. A for-the-moment word. He is going to disclose to you. What do you think that Jesus is talking about? He is going to give you a word for that moment. He's going to tell you prophecies of things that are going to happen. He's going to give you the truth to guide you in those very moments. When He comes and fills you to overflowing, as you allow Him in your life, He is going to speak to you the truth in those words. But if you don't ever ask Him to come in, how are you ever going to hear His voice? Being filled with the Holy Spirit helps us to communion with God, helps us to know His voice so that we can hear Him. Well, how then, Pastor, can we get filled with the Holy Spirit? Here's part one. We'll pick back up next week. Turn to Luke chapter 11. How do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? Even those of you that may not believe tongues is for everyone must concede on this point. While the Spirit leads all of us, as I've, as I've mentioned, He only lives inside of us to the degree that we welcome and make room for Him. Luke chapter 11, verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. What's the it? Verse 13, the Holy Spirit. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Greek verbs here, ask, seek, knock, are present imperative tense, which is keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And this should not be equated with desperation or frustration, but rather a steadfast persistence. Keep on asking for the gift, for it. Keep on seeking for it. Keep on knocking at the door for it. Now, what we see here about 11 and 12, about a fish and a snake and an egg and a scorpion, is this. Those that are genuinely interested in a good gift from God will not be given a counterfeit experience. If you know how to feed Caleb bread when he's actually hungry, don't you think that Father God who created you and loves you far more will give you something authentic that will actually give sustenance to your spirit man? 
So many people are afraid of asking for the Holy Spirit because they've heard about some extreme snake-handling weirdo. I don't want any of it. Well, trust, I don't want it either, okay? We're on the same page with that. Let's just have some common ground here, okay? They're so afraid of being fanatical that they never ask at all. They're afraid of missing or doing something in their flesh or being experiential that they never seek, they never ask, they never knock. But Jesus says in his word, if you ask sincerely, don't you think I'm going to give you something good? Now, as we empty ourselves, as we make room for him in our lives, as we invite him in, he, spiritually speaking, will fill us. I would ask us this morning, because I believe the Holy Spirit's involved in each and every believer. He leads the sons of God. But I ask you, would you like to have some gold in your vault? Or would you like to have your vault filled with gold? So many people just settle for a little bit of treasure. And that's great. It's a blessing of God. He gives us blessings. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us, to lead us. But He also wants to bless us more than we expect. And that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So each and every one of us should be asking the Holy Spirit. Ask for more of Him. Ask to be filled so that you can receive God's freshly spoken words. No no matter how many times you've asked. No matter if you've had your hands, someone's hands laid on you. No matter if you've been slain in the Spirit and you've been able to speak in tongues. Ask, seek, knock, continue. In fact, it's an imperative. Keep on asking. Keep on asking anyway. Curtis, keep on asking. He's got more for you. Kathy, keep on asking. He wants to fill you to overflowing. Again, I want to revisit this next week because I plan to get into the specifics of praying in the Spirit. But I want us to reflect on the importance of making room for the Holy Spirit and for us to ask whether or not we sincerely desire to let Him continually fill us. Are we content with just a little bit of the Holy Spirit? Let me remind you, the more that He fills you, the better you'll hear His voice. As you've come to know His voice, the better you'll be able to recognize His rhema words. Which, as I've said, His rhema words is part of the full armor of God, which is essential to being able to stand firm in the evil day. So there you have it, a short case that I would make to being filled with the Holy Spirit that we would be able to stand firm against the evil one. May we not make the tragic mistake of ignoring his rhema words to us, whereby rending rendering ourselves swordless. That's what we do. If you, if you don't hear his rhema words, you don't take them into action, then we've rendered ourselves swordless. God's voice is life. The Bible says that we don't live by bread alone, but by every rhema that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. Allow me to switch that around. If God's words allow us to live, then not hearing God's rhema words will ultimately lead us to death. That's the importance of his rhema. Here are the six pieces of armor. Remember, they all work together as one. Fasten your life-giving organs with his truth. Two, wash yourself in his blood that you may sink into his righteousness. Three, make sure every step you take you are preaching the cross of Christ. Four, keep your faith in front of you 
so that the devil's lies don't discourage you. Five, receive God's supernatural defense over your mind by renewing it in him. Lastly, receive the freshly spoken word of God. That is what the full armor of God means to me.